Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 105. Hello again, you old Romeo. This week we're discussing the season 5 premiere of Buffy, Buffy vs. Dracula, and series 7 episode 9 of Doctor Who, Hide. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. Okay. Buffy versus Dracula. It's um, it's finally arrived. Yeah, well, it's funny that you say that because when I kind of realized what the episode... Because you kind of said, try not to look at the title before you do. And so yeah. I kind of averted my eyes when pulling up the episode and everything. Um, and when I realized what it was... Um, and like, and and you said like, oh, of course they had to do that at some point. I thought, did they? Like, I don't think it ever occurred to me that I wasn't sitting there waiting for the Dracula episode. It was like, oh, like, well, you it's, know, that's interesting because like you might be the only one. Really? I feel like I I feel like that's one of the funny. reasons they well, did this is is because at least at the time, like, it was like what everyone was saying. It's like, well. What about Dracula? Like he, you know, Buffy sort of needs. And so actually just to sort of pull back a bit, like they're, of course, from the beginning of Buffy and like once people started writing about Buffy from like an intellectual or academic perspective, Mm -hmm. like that happened like pretty early in the series, like second, third season. So like, you're already like even in that like there's slayage articles or like pre-slayage articles even like of like here are themes from Buffy that uh you know compare with Dracula like right. the quintessential vampire book and like that are na- that now like they've gone back and put like this was written before the episode Buffy versus right, Dracula right. came out so like there was already like these sorts of comparisons and I feel like it's one of those things that. I have, I mean, I don't, I don't have citations. I probably should have citations. I don't have citations, but like, I believe I've seen before like that, like, yeah, it's one of those things where people are just like, when is Buffy going to freaking fight Dracula? Like, That's funny. just come on already, you know? That's funny. Cause I feel like um, Buffy plays with genre all the time, but it doesn't always necessarily like, um, like they haven't really done anything yet that like they've actually had like a piece of fiction or storybook kind of thing like come to life. It's more been like a monster which is like a an iconic horror monster or you know or evoking like genre tropes or something. But I but I necessar- I wasn't necessarily expecting Dracula the character to be like an actual person in the Buffy verse. So that's the bit right. that like, like so took me by surprise. Um, more s- Right. So you get, you get like this sort of Frankenstein trope, but it's not actually, actually Frankenstein. Frankenstein. You get like, yeah, like the werewolf tropes with like Oz and stuff, but it's not actually like the wolf man or whatever, you know, the wolf yeah. man. Right. And, and, you know, same with like, um, Jekyll and Hyde, you know, like it's not actual Jekyll and Hyde. It's like a student who's messing around with chemicals and also like the same kind of kind of like a steroids related thing. Right, right. It's like they take the the, the genre trope and then they they 
turn it into something that like fits the Buffy verse. Like I think this is the first time we've had like someone who we know like as an actual character kind of just appear in the sure. story. So that was like not that Buffy would use the Dracula myth, but that he actually turns up. Um, and like, I like the way they play with that. Like, you know, when Buffy's her reaction is like, get out. Like the idea that like, you know, not only is he like a character that we know from fiction in our world, but it's fiction within Buffy's world too. So she knows who he is. Like he's famous. It's not like Dracula turns up and he's, we know, wink, wink, that it's Dracula, but to Buffy, it's just another vampire. It's like, no, like, Dracula the book still exists. Yeah. She's watched the movies that are about him. You know, it's like he still has all the popular media attached. It's just that he's real as well. Um, yeah. You know, uh, and I, I like, too, the line about, like, when he says, do you know why you can't resist me. And she says, because you're famous. <laughs> like, <laughs> like right. that's a big part of it, you know? Um, yeah. And a lot of the like yeah. power he holds is like the fact that he's famous. He's the iconic. He wasn't the first vampire, um, but he was certainly the most famous and, you know, the kind of most iconic example of that monster in fiction. Um, so, and it's cool. I like, um, that, uh, Joss has done his homework and, you know, like that there are references, not just to the stereotype of Dracula, but references to like the Bram Stoker novel and everything too. Like, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's easy to do kind of, you know, count Dracula, but, that he also includes the things like the three sisters um, and uh, mm-hmm. and the fact that he turns into a wolf or, um, you know, the fact that he gets himself, like, shipped to Sunnydale in his coffin. Like, that's how he comes... In the book, he, he comes to England from Transylvania and he, like, ships himself in a coffin. Um, right, right. Like, all those little things. Um, and I want to talk about... Buffy and Xander in more detail, but they evoke very strong similarities to characters in the novel, like the way that they react to him. Um, Sure, sure. Um, So Joss is clearly a fan of the book, and, you know, you can tell that. um, So I want to actually, picking up on on what you're saying here, is that I want to point out that this episode was actually written by Marty Noxon. Oh, and you know so, what? I didn't even notice. I kind of just assumed, and that's well, the and, problem and with I, assuming. No, and I, I actually kind of realized that as you we were talking, like that, that you were sort of that it seemed like you were making that assumption anyway. But I want to point out because this is notable because this the series premiere of every se- of every or sorry the season premiere mm-hmm. of every season up until now has been written and directed by Joss. Right. And this is the first, uh, first one where, you know, first season where that's not the case. Um, and actually, so, I mean, I, I don't want to wait for the season recap <laughs> to like sort of go through this. Right. So I'll just sort of talk about it now. There's actually a number of sort of high level changes and promotions and things that happen 
um, with season five that we can talk, you know, sort of thematically how how that affects maybe the stories or doesn't affect the story of season five. Mm-hmm. And, and like, we've already talked even about how, like, there are people who think like the series goes downhill after season three. And so like some of these changes become maybe scapegoat mm. excuses for like why they think things happen. Mm-hmm. But I, I want to point out, so first of all, um, I'm mean, Joss is still showrunner. He's executive producer. Yeah. Like that doesn't change. He does have fewer episodes where he writes and directs um, in this season than he has in previous seasons. So he only writes and directs three of those Um one of them being the the finale. So we mm-hmm. will still get season five being sort of the traditional, you know, Jaws mm-hmm. finale episode. Um, but uh, Marty Noxon actually gets promoted to like co-executive producer um, in this mm-hmm. season. So um, that's, that's sort of one big change. Like she's given a lot more sort of responsibility and, um, you know, kind of has that, uh, you know um well yeah that that sort of responsibility and and she actually ends up so her and joss end up writing the same number of episodes and she actually ends up directing two of the episodes that she writes too so like kind of in that same mode of sort of being kind of like joss and now and so going way back to the beginning of our podcasts like remembering that marty noxon is the one who saw the buffy the vampire slayer billboard and was like that's gonna they're making a tv show out of that that's terrible idea (laughs) like and now she's co-executive producer kind of co-showrunner in a way and um you know directing and writing you know for the show and all this stuff. Um, and, and it has been writing all along, but like, just like taking on more responsibility there. Um, Jane Espenson is promoted to a producer and actually writes or co-writes five episodes. This series, David Fury, um, is a supervising producer gets promoted to that position and, and wrote a number, writes a number of episodes. And so, you know, again, so you're kind of having these people who have been associated with the show. It's not like, you know, they're new, Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, being sort of put into these different positions that they didn't, um, you know, that they weren't before. Um, and then we also get the addition of Stephen S. DeKnight, um as a writer mm-hmm. uh, who, um, if you're not familiar with him, he's actually right now writing um, the Marvel Daredevil series okay. on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um and he he actually and is the showrunner for that, and he took that over from Drew Goddard. Right. So, uh, you know, so there's and and apparently at some point Joss had actually expressed interest in being showrunner for Daredevil. Okay. So, but I mean, Joss expresses interest in doing a lot of things. Sure. So who knows how serious that was? But given his role in sort of the Marvel expanded universe, like that is interesting. You know what I mean? Given that. Yeah you know, he, he, he did that. So, um, uh, Stephen S. Knight, this is, this is kind of his introduction, but he, um, continues on Buffy. He actually does some stuff with Angel as well. And, um, he actually even writes some stuff for the Buffy comics, uh, in the season, season eight. So, you know, he, this is his introduction this season. And, and, you know, as we tend to point out when newer, new writers, um, come, we'll talk about his, first episode when we get to it but um do want to point out that just like he he's someone who 
continues to be an influence, you know, for the rest of the Buffy verse, mm-hmm. uh, as it, as it goes on. So, um, Anyway, just wanted to sort of point that out that like, yeah, like this is actually not a Joss episode. And actually, and what's important about that, the reason why I really wanted to make that distinction, um, one, to give Marty Noxon credit, because I I think she's a great writer Mm -hmm. and, and I like her stories and stuff. But also, so you're actually, so I may have misrepresented a little bit sort of the amount of people calling for. Okay. Um, I do think that is something that people were calling for, but it didn't actually occur to Joss either. It was totally Marty Noxon's idea to have Dracula in this episode. I'd have like not have had, not having had, you know, a watcher for a while and this sort of like secret of going out and hunting mm-hmm. versus slaying and like that kind of stuff. And, yeah. and that this, uh, antagonist that she faced was going to be like this, you know, cool vampire who, you know, he just sort of rides into town and is, you know, really cool and powerful and like all this stuff. And apparently, like when they were talking about it, Marty Noxon was like, "Oh, like Dracula," and Joshua was like, "Yeah, yeah, like like Dracula." And Marty Noxon was like, "No, like Dracula," <laughs> and and Joshua was like, "Oh, you yeah. mean like Dracula?" <laughs> and and that actually yeah. let's make him Dracula. And yeah, you know, he's public domain, like you know, the story was written in late 1800s. So like he's free game. Anyone can use him as a character and storyline. And, and yeah. And like, are you going to invent a tall, dark, brooding, seductive vampire? That's better than Dracula. Probably not. You know, um, if it's not broke, don't fix it. It, it's sort of his own subversion of his subversion of genre to actually put the actual John in the story. Um, so yeah, this is right. You, you know, we've talked plenty of times about you know Doctor Who does X genre. Like this is Buffy doing Dracula genre, <laughs> which yep. which is kind of ridiculous on the face yeah. of it, but it makes A total Dracula sense. Story. Like sort of in the in in the context of the show and everything. Um, yeah, well, and if you accept the idea that that some of these monsters are real and maybe we know the the vampire mythology because there are certain individuals who've become popular and everything then of course dracula's out there somewhere you know and spike kind of resents him for like you know the popularizing the story so now everybody knows what a vampire's weaknesses are and everything Mm -hmm. um so there's like that meta element to it um and the way that they all like gush about how cool he is and how cool it was to meet him like um like yeah, he's the villain, but also he's like the coolest, you know. He, like he's a famous villain, so we're also like really glad to have met him. Mm-hmm. And, and Buffy's kind and of interesting that, that he's he knows still who sort she of kicking around. Like, um, I mean, who you know? Presumably, he may have met other Slayers at right. some point or whatever. But you know, like none of them have been able to take him down. And right. we see even at the end that like. It takes more than a simple staking, apparently. Like even even the sort of within the mythology of right. the Buffy verse, that there's something extra special about him that he and you know, I mean, you could work on that as sort of a metatextual mythological basis of you know, Dracula's never gonna yeah. really go away. Like he's gonna keep he's gonna keep being resurrected um, in story. The unkillable vampire, um, yeah, but. Yeah, and and just the suggestion that he's still out there. Like, 
Buffy took care of it. I don't think he's coming back to Sunnydale again. I don't think he's looking forward to a fight right. with Buffy. But I think he he his little mist trail might have floated back to Transylvania. And I, he's still hanging out right, there, right. you know. I I will say this much only because like I mean we're not. This is a TV review. We're not gonna actually talk about like the comics later. Uh-huh. He we do see. The character does appear in the Buffy eight season season eight okay. comics, um, but you're right. Like he's we're not. It's not like we're gonna like get another Dracula story. This was it. It kind of took care of what it needed to take take care of and address. Sure, but it also doesn't entirely kill him off either. Right. Um, like it. Yeah, and probably for that reason. Like really, you're gonna like this is the unkillable iconic vampire. Like. If you're going to do a vampire story, this is the thing that you have to, you know, live in the shadow of, right. basically. Right. So This is um, Buffy's version of, you know, like, the fantasy writers who have to deal with Tolkien kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, so, definitely, uh, definitely fun sort yeah. of episode in that way. But also, I mean, you know, as far as the episode goes, like, I mean, I think I, I like how Dracula does come in and sort of give these little character insights that um, wouldn't, wouldn't happen otherwise. So I, I think you wanted to talk about sort of Dracula, just sort of the premise and mythology of Dracula as a cultural icon and sort of the original stories and stuff. But um, from there we can maybe kind of talk through some of the characters. So I've never, sure. I've never read Dracula. Everything I know about Dracula is like mm-hmm. from references to yeah. Dracula in like various pop culture adaptations of the original story. So like I'm like not even like once removed. I'm like two or three times removed from like sure. the actual original story that I've never read. So would love yeah. to hear your take as someone who I know enjoys the story. Yeah, well no, I, I, I've only read the book once, but I have read it, and I've watched a few vampire movies in my time. But, um, yeah, like, just a couple of things. Like, I mentioned that there are those references to the novel that, unless you'd read it, you wouldn't know. So it's a bit more informed than just, you know, making references to the, the typical vampire stuff. It's mm-hmm. actually making those specific things. Um, and we'll get more into these characters in depth, but just there are certain character archetypes, you know, like... So, um, you know, Van Helsing um, is the kind of older, you know, teacher, professor, mentor, vampire hunter, you know, so there's kind of a Giles-ish quality, like he's a bit more of a vampire hunter than Giles is, but he's not really the Van Helsing of like that Hugh Jackman movie either, like he's not really like an action hero, he's more the older knowledgeable guy who brings the book learning and you mm. know leads the the hunt against dracula so he has kind of a giles-ish quality um and but uh you know giles falling into the pit and getting sort of you know uh, menaced menaced <laughs> by the three sisters um is what happens Men- in the menaced novel or too. seduced like it's kind of both yeah, he doesn't seem to find it too menacing, <laughs> but um, right. But that's the, I mean that's the menacing aspect is that they that they enthrall you, right? They the, enthrall you. So that's um, what happens to 
so like the in the novel um jonathan harker you know you know gets sent he's like a solicitor he gets sent to this you know castle in transylvania <laughs> to go talk to dracula and doesn't know that he's a vampire and then kind of realizes he's like imprisoned in this castle and mm. doesn't really know why and uh you know, in the meantime, Dracula takes off for England, um, and he's kind of stuck there with the three sisters who are sort of, so he's kind of like Giles, like, you have that sense that something's wrong, but you really lack the the ability to really realize what it is that's wrong, mm. you can't really do anything about it, and then draw to, you know, these dangerous but very, you know, seductive women and everything. Right. Um, you know, and there are scenes in, in the Dracula movies of, like, yeah, like Jonathan Harker just sort of laying around while they kind of crawl all over him and, you know, mm -hmm. do their thing. It's very similar. Um, with Xander, um, you know, he immediately reminded me of Renfield, who uh, sure. in the the book is um, a a patient in an insane asylum um, who is like the patient of, there's a bunch of the, the heroine, Mina Harker has all these suitors in the absence of um, her fiance, Jonathan Harker. She has people, you know, pursuing her and who end up like joining their vampire hunting expedition or whatever. But one of them is a doctor. And so his patient is Renfield who is like in a straitjacket in a asylum, um, and he's been driven insane, with you know, under the thrall and in worship of Dracula. Sure. Um, and you know, and Dracula is promising him you know all these things in return for his worship and devotion, and he obliges. Um, and he has the habit of you know he's very much like Xander, like he's just totally all in fanboy of Dracula. Um, and he also eats bugs and rats and everything um, to, you know, assimilate their life force. So in a weird kind of like mimicry of, of Dracula, I guess. Um, so, you know, as soon as Xander started kind of like grabbing up spiders and stuff, um, yeah. I'm sure he's kind of the Renfield in this story. Right, right. Um, and then Mina Harker, you know is quite similar to Buffy that she's the one who's kind of pursued by Dracula and, and like Buffy is both drawn to him, but also has that sense of trying to resist him too. And like, it's not just totally one or the other. Um, so on the one hand, she can't help herself, but on the other hand, she wants to be free. She wants to see him, you know, killed and taken care of. So, um, and they do the thing where, uh, you know, he bites her, but also she drinks his blood. So now they've got this, like, blood bond, mm -hmm. which is actually, it's what keeps her, keeps drawing her to him. But it's also the way that they find him in the end is, like, they can track him because she has, you know, right. this connection to him. That So when he flees back to Romania, they can follow him there. Um, and that's how they kind of get him in the end. So, like, clearly this is a Buffy story with its own things, but also I like the way that they kind of repeat those archetypes in the story, too. Like, this is what Dracula does. Like, it's like, 
I guess wherever he goes, there's always a Mina, there's always a Renfield, you know, mm. like there's he's gonna have his like weird little servant who does his bidding and eats a couple spiders. And then like there's the 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 girl that he's, you know, trying to seduce and, mm. you know at the same time. Yeah. Um and I guess I mean the only other thing that I read which I didn't know much about was um, some scholars put Dracula in this invasion literature genre, which was, I guess, popular around the turn of the century. Um, you know, when maybe towards the end of the British Empire, there was a sense of, you know, worry about that. So you had all these stories about the British Empire being under threat from, like, monstrous invaders and everything. And I thought that sounds very like Buffy and Doctor Who. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's right, like these otherworldly. Uh, it's always yeah. you know whether it's vampires or aliens. There's always that sense of like you're always a moment away from the world coming to an end under the threat of some sort of outside invasion and everything. Mm. Um, so an interesting kind of connection to the time period there. Um. But other than that, I mean, I really wanted to talk, like, I mean, we can link to some stuff. I don't know that we need to go into, like, even though Dracula is the big, iconic vampire story, it's definitely not the first one, and it drew on right. other things like, um, you know, the the Vlad the Impaler legend, which, you know, uh, which is where um, Stoker got the name Dracula, um, and... You know, there's Polidori's book, The Vampire, yeah, John which Polidori, was the big... Right. That's what I was... Which in its, you know, was written at the same time as Frankenstein, you know, when they were all right. kind of hanging out in Geneva. Right, they and were they all supposed outside. to write their own, like, horror They're supposed to write their whatever. ghost story and everything. Yeah. You know, so that None was... None of which big... actually had ghosts in them. No. <laughs> like, it's funny, like... Sorry, yeah, that's a whole other topic of conversation. No, guess, it's but... true. But yeah, like... Um, no, maybe that was just their way of saying a horror. So like, maybe horror didn't exist yet. So they kind of right. invented it. But, um, you know, and then... So the that book being, like, the big thing which influenced Stoker. But then you also get the connection to Byron. Because Byron was there. It was his idea to tell these stories. And Polidori was, like, his physician or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and the... The tradition is that it's the character of Byron that inspired Polidori's vampire of <laughs> right. like the brooding, you know, mad, yeah. bad, dangerous to know that kind of the Byronic hero. So when Stoker creates, you know, Dracula, there's like a, you know, a, a little bit of a through line back to Lord Byron himself, um, which kind of means that Dracula is always going to be. Um, somewhat seductive. Like, as much as I like Nosferatu, which is the movie from the 20s, that silent movie, um, mm -hmm. which is probably the scariest version of Dracula for me, um, you also can't deny he's, like, really ugly and shrunken and kind of rat-like and everything. But sure. you also kind of can't deny that since Byron is in the DNA of Dracula, you're always going to have him be like a seductive, you know, figure. So, yeah, well, um, and, and, you know, 
just even in like the characters of like Angel and Spike, who are both yep. kind of the dark. I mean, yep. di- different way. Like Spike isn't quite the brooding, although he's getting there sometimes. Like not no, quite the same. No, but he has brooding. the kind of rakish type of thing that like a Byronic hero has mm-hmm. and everything. Yeah. Um, um, the other, the other, the other one that I couldn't quite think of right off the top of my head was um, the one we read for our class in the fall, the mysterious stranger. Yeah. Um, you know, which is another, you know, they, they, you know, they take a trip to the Carpathian mountains and there's this man who like slowly, like basically feeds on one of their party for a long time and, and, and the different stuff there. Um, and then we also talked about, um, Georges Milius, uh, or Milius, however you say his name, um, mm-hmm. who was the the first credited uh, visual rendition of like a vampire uh, mm-hmm. a year before Dracula came out with right. his um, haunted mansion or devil's mansion. However, I think it was the, the devil's mansion yeah, or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, it's in French, so I guess you could translate it a couple. Yeah, of times, I think but... it was translated differently in the UK and the US, but yeah, neither here nor there. Like this whole the whole tradition of the vampires, but like even those, like like you, it feels like there's sort of this like like you have all this stuff before Dracula, sort of feeding into it, mm-hmm. and then like after it's like all this stuff referring to it, like right. like Dracula is definitely that focal point bram stoker in the middle right is that focal point of where that that story goes like even if you've read the ones that come before it like you tend Mm -hmm. to read them insofar as like how they relate to dracula that came after it and then everything that came after it is sort of derived in one respect or another from it so right um right well and another thing well like okay two more things so like i mentioned also like i actually really Yes, it takes some liberties, but I actually really like the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula, the Gary Oldman, mm. you know, early 90s one. because Which I've not seen. Which is because it's just insane. The movie's nuts. And uh, it, it, other than the, like, big subplot that it adds, it actually does stick pretty closely to the book, um, which is kind of unusual. Not all of them do that. Um Sure. And and I like Gary Oldman's Dracula pays homage both to the like you know sexy seductive Dracula, but also the like really super creepy Nosferatu Dracula. Like he does like there's scenes where he's very seductive, and then there's scenes where he's white and shrunken and kind of mm. rat like and everything. Mm. Um, so it kind of tries to do the whole tradition like in one movie. Mm. Um, and then the other thing, I guess, is Interview with a Vampire, which they reference in this. You know, there's the line about, is this just a fanboy thing? Because I've met more than one, you know, pimply, overweight vampire who called himself Lestat. <laughs> um, you know, so, so like in that Anne Rice book, which I've not read, but I've seen the movie of, um, there's a couple different vampires and... Um, one of them is more the one that Brad Pitt plays in the movie is closer to Angel in the sense that he is a vampire, but he's conflicted about it. You know, like he he despises his own impulses at the same time that he indulges them. Um, 
but Lestat is definitely the like Byron. He's reveling in his own mm. depravity and everything, and he wants nothing more than to like ruin the next beautiful woman that he finds. You know, um, sure. So like the idea that like some of when when people in the Buffy verse are turned into vampires, some of them fancy themselves as Lestat and like go around like you know pretending they're the actual real Lestat which I guess makes you wonder is he just a fictional character or is he really out there too like I don't know maybe if Dracula's real maybe all of these yeah. really well-known vampires are real too well and and actually so there's actually earlier references even to Anne Rice so back way back in school hard uh, mm-hmm. Spike uh, says something along the lines of, you know, well, people still fall for that Anne Rice routine. So, like, there is a sense where, like, maybe Lestat and Anne Rice, like, her creations are not actually real. But, like, right. that vampires have sort of tried to take on that persona because, like, it appeals to the masses in a way. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, and that goes along with Spike's whole, uh, uh, you know happy meals on legs idea right Right. like like he's going to do whatever it is that people are going to fall for and people fall for this Anne rice idea so maybe maybe there isn't actually a listat but like on the other hand and and this goes i mean you could get all sorts of metatextual with Mm -hmm. um with uh dracula and and the way that um stoker writes it because if i'm if i'm not mistaken some or or possibly all of it is written as sort of like letters, like manuscript. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's all format, it's all right? epistolary and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, like that, like just taking that idea, if you're building like this sort of Tolkien-esque or Lovecraftian, you know, kind of like there's these right, manuscripts there's and verisimilitude old books and everything like yeah. that. I found and tells the story, like like it actually just within the. Um, you just when the, within that sort of tradition, like it does leave open for the possibility of there to be an actual one. Whereas, like Anne yeah. Rice, she's modern; she just made stuff up based right. on it's just a novel, stories. Yeah. But in sort of a well, it's sort of an art influences art. <laughs> you know, it's not life influencing art or vice versa, but it's art influencing more art. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, it's like this. You know, this thing where like now the vampires in like the Buffy verse are sort of mimicking Anne Rice's vampires um mm-hmm. because it works for whatever yeah. reason and and so and Buffy sort of calls them out on it too like I've oh, I've met several right. of these you know guys who call themselves Lestat so yeah you know whatever but yeah. but I think in this episode like we're not given so given all of this stuff that like Dracula does and sort of the way he affects people like I think yeah we definitely are meant to think that he's the real deal this isn't mm-hmm. you know some guy sort of posing just no definitely despite not. sort of Spike's take on him yeah <laughs> um, no I think there's more than a little bit of jealousy in Spike's take on him I think yeah. um you know and just annoyance at the ways that he's been sort of inconvenienced or the grudge about whatever sort of right past encounters they've had, you know, you're getting like the spike view version. I've mentioned before that I, that I listened to, um, 
Penn Gillette's podcast from from Penn and Teller. And the way Spike talks about, um, you know, talks about Dracula reminds me of the way that I've heard Penn talk about, like, David Copperfield. Like, because he's, like, so much, you know, more known and gets more money. And, like, right. you know, like, it's that kind of thing of, like, well, all he does is he's flashy tricks. Like, he's not a real, you know, whatever, right. you know? Right. And, and, and. Yeah, like, from the slightly second tier looking up at, you know, tier one. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Uh, right, right. He's at, right. It's not like, right. You know, it's not like Spike is, I mean, he's had, you know, whatever, a couple hundred years of, like mayhem and and success at you know brooding or whatever he does but like yeah yeah, like dracula has all these cool parlor tricks too so like he gets all the attention kind of thing and you know he spilled the beans to bram stoker back in the day so like yep he ruined it for the rest of us kind of ruined yeah like this is why we can't have nice things (laughs) (laughs) exactly um Uh, no it's good they they I think they did a good job and, and it's very funny the way they kind of worked in all the references and everything. Right. Um, uh, and, but then also like, not just that, like, and of course, I mean, this isn't the first time we sort of brought up that Buffy works on multiple levels, but also that like Dracula comes to town and it's not just that Dracula comes to town, but it's like, you know, Buffy has, now become like she's really shaken things up and she's yeah getting to that point where she's i mean she's been around for a number of years you know longer than maybe other slayers have been and mm-hmm. you know dracula has not only heard of her but knows that she's sort of famous now and so it's right. like like there is a legitimate reason for him to be coming and checking right. her out um and also the way that buffy interacts like you know, I think it, it can be easy to sort of think that Buffy can just go kill all the vampires all the time. Yeah. It's rare that we see her in any real danger at this mm-hmm. point, uh, at least from vampires. But even like like with Adam, we knew that like she was pr- going to succeed somehow. Sure. We just didn't necessarily know how. But like, I feel like it could become sort of a kitschy story to have Dracula, but they actually do a good job of making him a legitimate threat to Buffy. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, the fact that he bites her, like, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Other than angel, no other vampire has bit her. Oh, the master, I guess. But like, did, yeah, he did. He, he did bite her. Yeah. Okay. I, now I was getting confused, but like, yeah. So like only a handful of, mm-hmm. you know, vampires here. And like, so this is, this is a call that like, yeah, this is actually a player. Like he's right. He's a legit dangerous dude. Um, and, and she gets a taste of his blood too. Yeah. Which is even a step. So like, right. Yeah. Not just the kind of willingness to sort of let him go there, but like that moment of, Ooh, she might actually want to, like he kind of tempts her to say like you know you spend all this time fighting vampires for drinking you know people's blood and and like all the fuss is over this thing don't you have any curiosity about the appeal of it you know yeah 
Um, Which and and just the enthrallment that he has over her. Yeah. In being, you know, in being able to one get her to let him bite, but then also mm-hmm. to turn that around and have her. Yeah. Be convinced, and just things like you know, put down the stick. Okay, <laughs> you know, like yeah. yeah, you know, those sorts of. Of little things where it's like, actually, yeah, this could be a really dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, yeah, well, let's let's talk about that a little bit, because like I want to I want to get your impression. And, and mm. I'll, I'll just say up front, partly because I'm never I've never been quite sure. How to interpret her you know, tasting Dracula's blood and then the reaction that she has to it. Well, so I, I, I yeah, I'd like to hear your take on it, I guess is where I'm getting. So if I have, I think my one criticism of this episode, mm-hmm. and I don't quite know, it's not like I have a really good idea of what they could have done instead or how they could have gone about addressing this, but I feel like, it's just sort of taken for granted that Dracula can kind of influence you and control your mind and make you do stuff. And it it just sort of presents that as a fact. Um, which, okay, fair enough, that is traditionally what he has done in the past, so I guess that is just sort of a fact. But it doesn't really... Other than to say this is Dracula and he's just that powerful, it doesn't necessarily go into any more like depth about why that is or how that is. So then, and so then at the end when she does taste and then has those little flashbacks and then kind of just snaps out of it, I don't necessarily know how she did that. You right. know, like if if she's so kind of sure of herself and could resist then why was she succumbing in the first place and if she was succumbing then what was it that enabled her to get over it and you know and maybe it's just something as simple as the 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 gross factor of what she had to do kind of yeah woke her up like there's a kind of glibness to it that reminds me of like squishing the fear demon at the end of that episode like like right. this thing that seemed like an insurmountable obstacle once you actually do it actually isn't insurmountable at all it's just that you're so in awe of the thing itself mm-hmm. like dracula tells you you're his thrall so you just believe him because he's dracula when maybe you're not actually enthralled so i wasn't quite clear like how how under his spell is she really or is she not you know and what where exactly is the line i felt like that could have been maybe fleshed out a bit more yeah um yeah no and i think you're right i mean i think that's all similar and like maybe wouldn't have stated it quite exactly the same way but that's all similar mm -hmm. to whenever i see that scene i do feel like it's sort of like it's just a little she, too easy. She's jerked out of it, right, a little too easily. And the only thing that I can think of, because because you get the, you get the, you know, her tasting it, and then you sort of have these flashes, and within those, you get, like, flashes of, like, the first Slayer. Sort of the only way that I've right. been able to reconcile it, and I'm not, I'm not 100%, like, 
happy with this reconciliation. But like the only way I've been sort of able to do it is that, you know, I mean, a lot of a lot of what this episode is, is dealing with the first Slayer stuff and the power mm-hmm. of the first Slayer stuff. And even like, right. like there's the moment where like Dracula even says like, you know, your power is rooted in darkness and that's mm-hmm. sort of echoing what the first Slayer was saying and stuff in, in Restless. So there's this idea, like the only thing I can think of is that maybe there's something inherently um, like part of the Slayer power that is that, you know, from that original first Slayer sort of almost animal instinct that by simply tasting a vampire's blood, like you're you, like, you know, she says that was gross, but like maybe mm-hmm. there is something like legit, like, uh, you know, supernaturally repulsive about it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's sort of part of that same power and strength from the first layer. But like, I feel like, even as I'm struggling to explain it, I feel like that's such a sort of convoluted explanation that if that is the case, then yeah, like you said, like that it needs to be better sort of mm-hmm. stated. Like it, yeah, it, it can be done and you can sort of, you know, it, you, you know, it's like a laser field and you can sort of do your gymnastic like convolutions to get through it. But yeah, but it takes a lot of work and a lot of sort of, um, yeah, uh, uh, deduction to get through all of that. So I'm not, like I said, I'm not a hundred percent happy with that explanation, but it's, it's the only way that I've really found to sort of, you know, possibly sort of justify what happens yeah. in that way. And that her glibness there is actually like maybe, you know, I mean, it wouldn't be the first time that like a glib remark sort of highlights a deeper sort of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, principle or something and so maybe that's what's going on here as well but yeah if so it's not like it's not completely obvious and you have to do some work to get there yeah the other possibility but again i don't think this has any more evidence necessarily than what you just said is that like you know she tastes and has all these flashbacks to like her power which is what like dracula wants her to embrace her power but her power for evil rather than you know use that power for you know for darkness rather than for light or whatever um but maybe there's a suggestion that like in that kind of moment of real because there is the image of the first layer in that in there too and we saw her at the end of the last season be kind of critical of the spirit of the first layer and not of the fact that she has power, but of the fact that it is necessarily a kind of, you know, bad or negative thing or like that it has to be um, totally violent or animalistic or all these other things. So mm-hmm. maybe just the reminder of, oh, yeah, that's the thing I'm resisting against, you know, like, like maybe kind of that just the like using the taste as a metaphor like just the one taste of where her power could go reminds her of why she doesn't want to go in that direction mm. um but again i think it leaves it a little too vague so i don't know that there are you know real strong pointers as to how to interpret 
and it's not it isn't quite vague in like a ambiguous way it's more like i feel like they could have just emphasized a bit more what exactly her epiphany was or what where did that strength come to suddenly snap herself out of you know his control and everything mm. um but like also too it occurred to me that i like the way that they do call back to the first slayer being potentially a not entirely positive goal like in terms of a role model you know <laughs> like you don't want to embrace all of what this the first slayer embodies um and like even just the way of using like a taste for blood like you can use that in a kind of the fact that she goes out hunting late at night which like is in a way she uses the word hunting rather than it's not like a defensive thing. It's an offensive thing that mm -hmm. she's going out and seeking them and hunting them down. And that is like bloodthirsty, you know, not in a way that means literally drinking blood, but like she has a hunger for, like, I think she's recognizing that there is potentially that bloodthirstiness and that draw yeah. to something that she's kind of realizing her own capability for that. But that's what enables her to sort of pull back from it too. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, goes back to kind of stuff that faith was saying even yeah. like, you know, a couple seasons ago now, like mm -hmm. that there's this, there is something more than just, yeah. Like, like you need to have the hunt and go on the prowl and mm -hmm. Buffy maybe sort of fought it for a while, but like, this is kind of hinting at maybe it's, it's a little darker. It's, than That's more of a factor yeah. in her than she's realized yeah. before. And, and the difference being again, like there was this ritual they performed to defeat Adam that mm -hmm. like awakened this first layer instinct. So like, Right. Um, you know, the fact that Dracula says, you know, your power is rooted in darkness, like there is this, mm -hmm. there's kind of a truth there. And Buffy, I mean, like, we don't know exactly what that means, obviously, like, but clearly the stuff, like the dreams that the first Slayer was in were pretty dark, you know, with the hunt, right. with her hunting each of the members of the Scooby. So now is that something that Buffy's going to have to deal with? Also, I want to point out before we kind of move away from Dracula and Buffy, um, he says, you think you know what's to come, what you are, right. you haven't even begun. And that's a, that's a verbatim repetition of what of Tara says Tara's lines, yeah. to Buffy in the dream yep. that she has. So um, clearly you've picked up on it based on your response. So, but I, I wanted to make sure we sort of explicitly called that out that, thematically in the show and i mean you could possibly even take the fact that marty noxon is the one writing the episode too mm -hmm. like they're like we are at a different stage now this is like you know we've had the high school we've had the freshman year of college this is like we're getting into like adult territory now mm -hmm. like this is this is not just even like it's not like high school kid stuff and it's not even like early college like yeah. yeah. Oh, look at me. I'm such an adult. Ha ha. You know, flip your hair back kind of stuff. Like this is, mm -hmm. this is 
I we're mean, at a new level we're, we're, now. We're yeah. talking about power being rooted in darkness, and like we're talking right. about, you know, new things are coming that we've never explored before. And so this mm-hmm. is definitely a new chapter in the Buffy story. Yeah. I. Yep. <sighs> I know we want to go through like the other characters, but we're kind of running out of time. And I mm-hmm. want to make sure we talk about Giles, especially. Okay. So I, I, if we could talk yeah. about, like, and more than just like his, you know, travails his... with the three sisters. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> I want to talk about specifically the stuff with him and Willow sort of mm-hmm. early in the episode and then him and Buffy right at the end. Yeah. Um, and particularly, he's, he tells Willow he's going to leave. Like yeah. that he's that he's not needed, he's not necessary. And and you know, that he and it's not just like he's feeling, like he, he actually believes that Buffy doesn't need him anymore, that she's actually right. grown beyond herself. Right, right. And he's proud of it. It's not like a bitter I'm leaving in a huff because no. you're all ignoring me. It's right. it's a kind of him working to acknowledge that maybe the last year was you know tough for a reason that that Buffy's growing and maybe growing past the point where you know at least he thinks she needs him um so I definitely get that sense like the fact that he's having Willow like archive everything and right. do all the, it's sort of this like we're preparing for when I'm gone kind of you know there's yeah. like this passing of the torch like Willow, you're now the guardian of the book knowledge and, you know, right. you kids you kids will be fine with your digital archives and everything, you know. Right. Um so Which we remember how well scanning books in, you know, willy nilly worked before. Right. With yeah. the, with Moloch There's a and, demon in yeah. the internet, yeah. 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 Um, no, that's a great idea. Yeah, they kind of forgot that, didn't they? Um maybe it was a one time thing. But yeah. uh yeah, so like definitely this idea of of Giles preparing to leave. So then of course at the very end he gets ready to tell Buffy that. Yeah. And she comes out with this you know sort of revelation of you know one her hunting and and sort of the stuff she's been doing there, but also that she feels like she's been neglecting sort of her duties and and you know again we're past sort of the high school rebellious years like she's sort of embracing now i mean very different from the early episodes where she you know she kind of embraces it sometimes but like still kind of also rejects and wants to be the you know cool fun let's go out and party kind of thing like this is this is her sort of adult recognition now of yeah i ready to work i have responsibilities and i realize that there are things I need to do and I can't do it on my own. Yeah. And she kind of acknowledges too, that the same thing that he says that he hasn't been her watcher. Yeah. But her conclusion to that is not, well, I don't need him anymore. It's, it's, that's a problem. Right. And that's, that's not the way it should be. So we need to fix that. And she's willing to do her, not just like, it's not just, oh, Giles, you haven't been looking out for me. It's that, right? no, she recognizes that she needs the guidance and she's ready to do her yeah. part in making that yeah. work. Yeah, and that's just a good bit of writing, the the way that she sort of states that. And you can see Giles is, 
look on his yeah. face like yeah. like yep yeah, we're on the same page and then well and like like he he knew it but he didn't really want buffy to say it like there's still that disappointment right. there too right um, like he was kind of hoping that she would be sad about right his wanting to go and so like when she starts talking about the very things that he was going to bring up it's like yeah. oh you've already noticed this a disappointment too. yeah, yeah. Um, but then of course the 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 turn this this the happy turn right right uh, that she actually needs him to stay, and and so suddenly what he was going to say becomes yeah uh, a moot point. So yeah, and he just doesn't even bring it up. Yeah, that he was ever thinking that in the first place. Right, right. So yeah, I mean, again, like I don't, I don't know that we need to spend a ton of time on this, but I want to make sure we like cover that because that's like we've talked about how sort of. Uh, aimless giles has been but like again like you know is this could be like a turn in that and so like i mean clearly they're not they're still not associated with the watcher's council but she's coming Mm -hmm. to him to be her watcher so there's still like like you know it's almost like there's still something sort of beyond any bureaucracy or or whatever might have built up over the years the centuries of millennia perhaps that that there's something worthy about the sort of relationship between mm-hmm. a watcher and a slayer that mm-hmm. needs to continue and so you know how do they do that outside of the context of the watcher's council you know and not that they haven't been already sort of doing that to a certain degree but like how do they formalize that and sort of yeah work on the training and stuff and and all of that yeah. like that's yep. that's a question. Yeah. Um it's a good question. And then we also need to talk about the ending. Yes. The very end. Yes. Um, um I don't want to give short shrift. Is there any is there any other of the of the three relationships, particularly like Buffy and Riley, Xander and Anya, Willow and Tara, that you wanted to sort I of mean, talk through or I don't think I mean, not really. Like, there's little interactions and stuff, but I don't think there's yeah. a lot of big changes or anything. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I like all the, the sort of the different... You get, like, Buffy, Xander, and Will all sort of being on the enthralled side of things. Mm-hmm. With, and then the out the, the non... Or the sort of second-tier Scoobies, I guess. Riley, Anya, and Tara all kind of being chagrined by their partner's um, thrall. Although Anya sort of also, Anya also sort of has her own thrall with Dracula too. And like apparently hung out with him at some point, (laughs) hung out with him, you know, like we're not sure exactly to the extent of what that means. What? Yeah, exactly how far that went. But like, and that seems to be related to like, who's met him, you know? So like, Anybody who's sort of, you get this idea of like, yeah, anybody who's actually met him, you kind of can't help, you know, to a certain extent being a little bit in awe and dazzled and everything. And of course, Sander is the furthest gone because that's always Sander. Um, right. He's, he's, he's sort, sort of, of the most weak-willed and also... He kind of is, yeah. Um, the most easily influenced yeah. and, you know, and is frustrated at the end. He knows it's always him. So he's, 
Right, once that he's quite angry about that at the end. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, And, you know, I wanted to point this out because I said this to you. um, You mentioned that you liked Dracula's line about you're strange and off-putting. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And I said, as soon as I heard that, um, it reminded me of the line from Toy Story. Um, uh, You are a sad, strange little man. And I bid you farewell. And And I said, you know, ever since I learned that Joss Whedon uh, partially wrote that movie that line always stuck out to me as as i bet that's a whedon line and i actually looked it up and it is yeah um i found like i did a google search and in the google books um amy pascal's biography yeah, yeah. um she calls out that line like somebody who also wrote on the script said you know a bunch of his stuff made it in and that was one of them like that was the most memorable mm-hmm. line and it's like as soon as you hear that you know that that's yeah a weed in line yeah um yeah so. no that's great there's um there uh, oh there was something else i think i was telling you in the same conversation like of of going through oh roseanne because he he worked on you know like right. some early seasons of that show and um like yeah someone who kind of went through and like picked out what they think anyway what they have good reason to believe are sort of the weedonisms in the scripts mm-hmm. that he helped work on there and it, it is fun to sort of see those kind of things and even i mean you know i like even like in age of ultron like i mean he he obviously wrote the script for that but um you know it's also got a heavy like sort of corporate hand on it so like uh-huh. but like you can definitely tell the lines that are just like pure weeded you know the the yeah well i felt stuff. i mean I felt that about Avengers, which, you know, is probably of, like, of the Whedon things that I've seen, the one to me that feels the least Whedon-y and the most sort mm-hmm. of big brand corporate. Right. Like, for obvious reasons. But even in that, you know, I, no other director would have the Hulk smack, you know, Loki around the room quite like he does. <laughs> right, like, that right. just seemed like... You know you're in some other strange world when that happens. Like that's right. not how superhero movies work. Right. So there's cert- even when he has sort of corporate overlords bearing down on him, you still get those unmistakable little bits of, you know, uh, you know the way his brain works that aren't quite like anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And once you've once you've once you learn it, you kind of pick up on them when you right. Them. You can almost you know not you can smell it. Yeah, it's like it's like those um, like those like three D pictures. Like you know, if you stare at them, you can see like the image kind of come out at you. It's like once you do yeah. that, you can always do it. And like, but then there's always these yeah. people who can never like see it. And you right. know, it's kind of funny. Anyway, we yeah. talked about that way too long. Um, okay, well we, we do want to we need finish to talk with... about Doc. The ending. Um, so sorry, we need to talk about the unnamed Buffy's sister with Michelle Trachtenberg. Played by Michelle Trachtenberg. <laughs> yes. Um, whose name we don't know yet, but it is whose Dawn. name we don't know yet. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so she's just so we've had the bits of foreshadowing, which again, if you're the new viewer and you're watching this for the first time when it first came out, you wouldn't necessarily connect those foreshadowings to this girl yet. Right, especially because, like, they're all sort of in context of, like, dreams and people just saying weird things anyway. Like, even if you caught that, like, 
oh, there were multiple references to, you know, numbers, you know, or, you know, particular numbers or, like, Little Miss Muffet or whatever. Like, yeah. you wouldn't pick up that these were specifically foreshadowing yeah. this, this person. This moment. But we do know that. And so... We do. And so, yeah, she's just sort of there at the end of the episode. Um, and... And I love it because it's a great, like, if you're not expecting it. Yeah. Like, it's a great what the heck what moment. The heck yeah, moment. Yeah. Yeah. Like. Um, and so, like, my first kind of. Um, so not only is she just there, but but pretty instantly Joyce and Buffy just accept that she is there, has been there, you know, refer to her as if she's just. The sister. Yeah, Buffy, take your sister. She's always been there. So, you know, you know, laying my own kind of speculation and stuff, I guess what it reminds me of the most is Superstar um, and the way that Mm. Jonathan's spell influenced people to believe that this way of life had always been that way, you know, and and the way that that... um, episode starts where you don't see the spell being cast it just the episode starts and the world is different and everybody's accepted it and you don't quite know where or why or how it's different it's just already that way Mm. um you know so whether that's what's going on here that was kind of the first thing or was she just living with her dad or was she just living with her dad? I I tend to doubt it. I tend to doubt it. Okay. Um, I, Am I throwing you a red herring? Is that what you're telling me? I feel pretty sure that there's some sort of magic going on here. Um, so, okay. So, and I mean, obviously we don't know a whole lot. But... Uh, I don't what, think this is just the sister that... Um, Buffy has never mentioned before. Right. It's like those shows where you just like suddenly have an, a, a new unnamed a cousin. New kid. Like yeah. who, who's filling in for the brother because the actor who played the brother had to leave the show or something. Right. Or like the kid goes upstairs and never comes back down. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. So they think they did on like happy days or something. Yeah. Um, right. Like, the br- br- you know, Johnny went up and like he just. Yeah. You know, no. Yeah. Wasn't up. it Ralphie or something? Like. Was it? I, I, I can't remember. remember. I do remember. They did that on some show, something. But... Like, I, I think it's happened on a number of shows where, like, yeah, it's like, or like the character. It, it's more often like the opposite kind of thing, where it's like a character is introduced in like the pilot and is like in three episodes, and then never, yeah, you never, never see him back. again. Um, yeah. Where this is, but yeah, like this is a different situation. It's like, and I could see, so I could see Joss playing around with that, but I don't think that's going to be like the ultimate explanation. Right. Like, I could see it maybe going that direction where he tries to fool you into maybe this is just the sister that we'd never heard of before. But I I don't think, I don't think he, you wouldn't, I don't see Whedon working that way. Like, I don't see kind of the, the point of doing it that way. And, um, and there's been too much kind of like build up and foreshadowing to her entrance for it not to be significant. Yeah. Um. So, um, I think, you know, I don't, yeah, I don't know quite why she's here, who put her there, 
Yeah, um, and that's, I was going to ask, like, you do you know. have it? So, okay, if if it is a magic thing, then who's what, behind the yeah, magic? Yeah, what what ha- like why? Like, and do you have, have any idea there? No idea. I mean, I mean, it could be some sort of like a big bad who's planting her there for some purpose. Yeah. Um, or it could be something like, you know, in Doctor Who, we've had these, you know, I think of like alien children who are lonely and attach themselves to unsuspecting humans who don't realize that they're aliens. You know, like it could be something like that. Like maybe Dawn herself is, you know, uh, you know, introducing herself into this family for some reason, mm. um, you know, to get whatever it is that she's, you know, after sort of out of them. So, um, I don't know. And there's that kind of ambiguous, like the only thing Buffy says when she comes into the room is like, she says, what are you doing here? Which is interesting. Cause she doesn't say, who are you? You know, you could read it in a couple ways. It could be like, what are you doing here? Like, Hey, there's a stranger in my yeah. room. What are you doing here? Or it could be like, well, what are you doing here? Like, I know you. I just don't know why you're here. Yeah, you're not supposed you know? to be here. You're not like, yeah, you're supposed to be somewhere else. So that I like the way that that's, you know, so by the time Joyce says, take your sister with you, and then they both complain, like they've got a already prearranged sisterly hatred of each other and everything. Like they don't want to go to the movies together and, you know. Um, but there's that one line where, it could be Buffy reacting to the fact that she doesn't know her, you know, there's just that one instance where she might be, you know, maybe before whatever magic it is sort of takes effect or Mm. something. Um, but I don't know. We'll find out. I'm sure. So, yeah, I bet we will. (laughs) So with that said, let's move on to Dr. Who. Yeah. Doctor Who. So Hyde. Mm-hmm. This is um, this was an interesting episode. Um, I you you said you really like this story. I do. Um, it's not a bad story. Okay. I I didn't. I don't know that I felt it was like particularly. I, I don't know. It, I didn't see it as being like a great story either. So like, uh-huh. I'm, I'm curious, I'm curious to know sort of why you liked it. And like, I mean, I'm sure we can talk about that as we go through, but I guess I sort of want to just talk through like the premise and the, the sort of the situation and setting sure. and all of that first. And then maybe um, we can talk through kind of why uh-oh. you like it and, and where things go from there. So, um, we have this so from a situation so we're so it's sometime in the 70s i believe right like we uh-huh. get the i don't know if we get an exact date or not if we do i don't remember it but, i think it's like 1974 okay so um we're in the 70s and uh we've got this emma and this professor palmer mm-hmm. who are ghost hunters so emma's a psychic Mm -hmm. palmer is like an ex-military man who like knows a lot about technology 
Mm -hmm. apparently at least you know 1970s era technology (laughs) um you know and has sort of the practical and like classified background and sort of like supernatural or Mm -hmm. extraterrestrial type things um there's this ghost who turns out to be you know actually a live person in Mm -hmm. an alternate universe and what hilla was that her name something like that yeah um Mm -hmm. And uh, and then we have this monster mm-hmm. creature that's chasing her, but we find out the reason, well, we, we sort of presume based on what the doctor says that the monster must be chasing her in order to get through whatever portal she's going to go through so that it yeah. can reunite with its love interest it's lover yeah Yeah, on on this side of things (laughs) yeah um so that i mean that's like the basic like characters and setting and stuff but Uh um i guess like from from a i mean from a character perspective like one one of the things that i had actually actually before we started recording was like i wasn't i wasn't entirely clear on who the Emma, who the professor and Emma were supposed to be. Right. Um, because the way they sort of talk to them and the way like the doctor sort of knows who they are. And, you know, mm-hmm. even though they don't know the doctor, like they seem like, you know, they're involved at least to some extent with like British military, you know, or intelligence or whatever. And uh-huh. so um, I was curious to to know whether they were actually characters like sort of re rehashed or re you know brought from classic who like and that this was right. maybe like the first time they were meeting the doctor but the right. doctor kind of seemed like he knew them already so like maybe he had had interactions with them before at a later date in their timeline mm-hmm. um but you said that wasn't the case. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. I can definitely see why um that why you would think that. Um so like and I think that's just like kind of a coincidence because of the time period that it's set in and everything. I mean, it's definitely these aren't like references to any previous stories or characters. It's more just that sense of um like the doctor says him trying to figure out what the truth is behind Clara. And so he's seeking out, um, you know, maybe a psychic who could help him intuit that answer. Um, so, you know, you kind of get the sense that the whole adventure with the ghost is sort of a fun little side trip, but that's not why he's really there that he came here to have the opportunity to talk to Emma. Um, so, yeah, but you put those things together, and I think definitely that could be maybe a little bit misleading. Um, so I can understand uh, mm-hmm. why you would feel that way. And maybe I just will kind of explain up front why I like this episode, because I feel like it's kind of hard to talk about in pieces. Um, mm. I don't know that... I like the the characters, like, you know... I think Emma and Dr. Palmer are, like, fine as characters. I'm not... They're not necessarily what I love about this episode. Like, definitely, I think 
as usual, the doctor and Clara are more interesting and we know way more about them and, you know, like mm -hmm. it's their story, which is really at the center. But I guess from like an overall perspective, I just love this episode's, I guess, structure. Um, mm. The way that it just kind of, it's almost like if, if, this isn't necessarily my favorite episode, but it's maybe the most representative of why I like Doctor Who. That it kind of does everything in one episode. And it does it all well. Like, it's not just it tries to cram everything in. But it's actually just really weird the way that it goes about it. Like, the fact that it starts as this, you know, gothic ghost story with the like paranormal kind of thing um you know so you're getting all the like hide behind the sofa creepiness of mm -hmm. what you know doctor who can do but then you get the like fact that the the sci-fi twist explanation that oh it's not really a ghost it's a time traveler and she's trapped in another dimension um and you know we need to go through all of history and through wormholes to rescue her. Um, and then you get this, you know, well, and then, you know, you, I, you know, I like the section where the doctor kind of goes in there. So you get the kind of like adventure aspect of, you know, him being chased by the monster and having to get the TARDIS in to rescue him and everything. Mm -hmm. um, but then the like really bizarre twist at the end that, you know, the monsters aren't really actually monsters, that they're actually these separated, you know, lovers who are trying to get back together. <laughs> so the fact that, you know, the doctor's realization that, oh, we've been running from the monsters and all they, all this monster wanted was, you know, like the doctor was right when he said, oh, you just need a piggyback. That's true, but not so he can go and eat people, but because right. he just right. wants that's, to be... That's the implication, is that, like, the monster... Yeah. Doesn't want to kill the doctor until they get to the other side. Then it will kill wantonly. Right, and, and then he'll yeah. But but this realization that no, he's trapped there too, and he just needs to get back. So then they have to go back in and apologize to him. Um, and like the ugliest monster you can think of is the most romantic. Um, sure. Like his you know his line about hello you old Romeo, and it's that weird like twisted tree trunk you know face. Right. Um, you know, and then like riding the TARDIS back through the, it's just like a weird bonkers kind of episode. And I feel sure. like it, it's not so much that I think any one piece of those is the best thing ever, but like all together, I think they make a really strong episode. And I like the way it runs the gamut from Gothic horror to, you know, trippy sci-fi through to like romantic comedy at the end <laughs> um Fair i don't enough. know for me and maybe that's just an individual thing of how much do you enjoy watching an episode um it like hit all the sweet spots of what kind of sure i look for and then i mean beyond that i feel like as we go through and talk about it like there actually are a lot of individual moments that are really good and layers too. Like, you know, hmm. I, I think Emma and the professor stand as another kind of parallel to the doctor and companion, you know, that, 
you know, we've had them before, but I think they're a good example of that, that you have this kind of traumatized war survivor doctor who hunts ghosts and his uber compassionate female companion, you know, like they're not very um, difficult echo of the doctor and the companion and their kind of relationship. Um, and then there's other moments too. Like I think there's things with Clara and the TARDIS. I want to talk about there's things with, I love that mm -hmm. moment with Clara in, um, inside the TARDIS when she kind of has her existential crisis, as you called it. So like there are individual scenes too, that I just think are really striking. So. Yeah, no, certainly, certainly that's the case. And, and I think the insight, um, or, you know, even the parallels, which maybe mm -hmm. can help give a little insight about the Doctor and Clara. But, um, yeah, I don't, I mean, okay. You like the structure. You like the, the way the different sort of genres come out at different points, more or less. That's fine. I, I, it didn't quite strike me that way, but I can at least understand Yeah, and, and I, where I've, you come from with that. I found that with this episode that, this is a generally, I think, positively received episode, but it does tend to be like, rather than being a love it or hate it, it seems to be like some, you're either, there are people who are kind of lukewarm over it. And then I know yeah. there were the people who it came out and everyone, and there were certain people that said, you know, instant classic, you mm -hmm. know, and that was kind of how I felt was, man, when that episode ended, I just wanted to rewind it and start it all over again. Sure. Um, but again, that's a very individual kind of reaction. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I definitely fall more on the lukewarm side of things, I guess. Um, that's fair enough. But, uh, I, yeah, like I said, I don't think it was, it certainly wasn't a bad episode. It just, I, mm -hmm. I don't know that I quite felt the same way there. So, um, yeah. but yeah, like, so let's talk about sort of like finish out mm -hmm. at, at least, on their own merits, the professor and Emma, because I mean, mm -hmm. well, I say on their own merits, but then I was just going to bring up the parallel between them the and, and, and the doctor and, and Clara. So, I mean, obviously the, the very fact that um, the doctor calls, you know, Emma, the professor's companion and mm -hmm. she sort of corrects him. No, it's assistant. And knowing right. that it's the seventies and that's the right, term right. that they used in sort of classic who and stuff. So, you know, just that idea of that, yeah, there is this, there is this close relationship, but it's, you know, it's not quite romantic, at least not yet. And mm -hmm. there's like this, you know, but it is sort of codependent at the same time. Mm -hmm. And, and they both enjoy each other's company, but yeah. And also each other's capabilities and strengths and that kind of thing. Um, Definitely this. So this is, you know, I guess the comparison here is the doctor with, you know, if Palmer and Emma are, you know, acting the way they sort of are, this is like the doctor sort of near when he is nearing the end of a companion's relationship because, sure. because they're well known um, to each other. I mean, like, uh -huh. um, you know, so this is like, nearing end of season two, you know, right. uh, Doctor and Rose, uh, right. you know, right. and or 
or even like, um, you know, after a couple of seasons with Amy, you know, like there's, there's definitely a camaraderie there. And I guess the difference being that like, because of what we learn about Hilla later, you know, being a Mm -hmm. descendant and whatever. And the fact that like, we know that Palmer and Emma end up getting together and having children, like Mm -hmm. that's the opposite of what usually Mm -hmm. happens with the companions. Mm -hmm. The companions usually either leave or get left or, die or lose their memory or so you know some terrible thing happens and that's not the case with them so this is like there's also like as much as we can see the parallels between them and and like the character specific parallels too like with you know the doctor and and palmer and their sort of sharing of Mm -hmm. war yeah feelings like it's not even really reminiscence reminiscence (laughs) you know memories per se but um you know the fact it's you know just that like even with that sharing like the result is very different and sort of the end of the relationship is different so you kind of wonder like okay can the doctor ever have that or not like will that right well because there's those parallels does the differences what's fundamental that changes you know, and give sort of Palmer and Emma the happily ever after that they seem to be destined right. for. Um, right. I, I saw an interview the, uh, on like YouTube, which was old, but it was the first time I'd seen it with mm. Neil Gaiman talking about something else. But they asked him, you know, I guess it was after the doctor's wife came out and someone being kind of snarky, I thought, saying to him, you know, oh, do you feel like you introduced you know, sex to the world of Doctor Who. And, you know, in response to that episode, and Gaiman saying, I think sex is always, you know, sex and romance are always part of the world of the Doctor. They're just properly repressed. (laughs) Like they should be. And like, I like that, I like that parallel of like, yeah, like you get the sense of uh, Palmer and Emma will end up together, but they're not there right now. We're in the repression phase, you know, where right, right, right. there's lots of chemistry, there's lots of tension, but you know, it's not openly acknowledged. Nobody really lets themselves say what they feel or act on what they feel. Right. Really and, and any, bring it out in the open, any sort of reference is by illusion, you know, the doctor dances right. kind of stuff. Exactly, like it's, yeah, it's yeah. not, you're you're talking in euphemism uh you know about it and that's and that's not the same thing as is it not being part of the world like i think he's no it absolutely is i mean obviously like the doctor has kids like we know how that happens it's not like a big secret but yeah yeah there's this right yeah yeah so there's like in a, a kind of under the surface or between the lines kind of flirtation with it but never kind of openly acknowledged and everything. And you even get that, you know, awkward little moment at the end where the doctor goes on his spiel about love and, you know, everything. And then he kind of takes his arm off of Clara. Like he kind of forgot himself for a moment, you know, um, and started to maybe talk about things that he doesn't talk about. And even with like, so what's his advice to Palmer and Emma? It's like to hold hands. Like that's the height of, you know, the romantic connection that you can have is that you're holding hands and 
You right, know. which is an echo of, uh, is it in Fear Her, I think he said? Like, what do you need to get through the universe? It's a hand to hold. Mm. Um, so that's kind of a sentiment. You know, and what's the first thing the Doctor does in the first episode of the new show? It's grab Rose's hand and says run. So, like, the idea of grab it, holding hands as you run is kind of mm. this iconic, you know, symbol of unity, I guess. Sure. Um, for the show, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that. so... Yeah, and I think Palmer and Emma aren't... We don't... You know, as always with episode characters that are only one episode, it's not like you get to know them super well, but, you know, I think they pack a fair amount of, you know, parallel in there. You know, the fact that... And we've got a lot of that in this season, I think, in particular, of you know, characters who mimic or mirror the Doctor. So, like, him with his, you know, uh, his espionage and behind enemy lines, and he's fighting the good fight, but not quite from the, like, morally upright standpoint. Like, you get the sense that he was on the side of the angels, but kind of did some seedy stuff in the mm. effort to win the war. And the cause was good, but maybe all of his means weren't exactly... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, totally good. Um, and, you know, that being kind of echoing, you know, some of the regret that the Doctor has for the things that he's done to, you know, win against the bad guys, I guess. Right. Um, you know, and the way that that works into the fact that they're, he's become this sort of reclusive, like, ghost hunter, you know, um, which I want to come back to when Clara has her little speech to, too but to, to the point where he like buys the haunted house yeah yeah um yeah or the haunted property or whatever yeah like he this is this obsession of his now right um yeah i don't i don't know that i have much more to say about them so if you want to talk about them in relation to clara that's fine unless there's something else you wanted to talk through i don't i don't yeah. know that there's a ton to say about the monsters and Hilla, sure. I mean, we find, again, we find out at the end that she's, like, a descendant. She can't go back. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, like, she's a pioneer and stuff. But I feel like we don't really even interact with her directly sort of all that much. It's no, just a no. few sort of bits of history about her. So I don't yeah. know how much we have to say there. But, um, so, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, you even get the sense that maybe the doctor had some inkling of what the ghost was before he even got there like you know that he may have like the way he says who she is who hilla is kind of suggests to me that he's heard of her you know um oh yeah again yeah again this is all all of this is secondary to his real purpose which is you know to find out about clara um, so i get the feeling that that she's another of these sort of pioneer people that the doctor likes to call out, like, like in waters of Mars where, you know, it's like, you know, the first person to lead a mission to Mars. And then the first person to, you know, her granddaughter is the first person to lead a mission beyond, you know, to the whatever stars or whatever. So it's that same kind of, um, sort of pioneering attitude and, um, yeah, whatever. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and I guess the only other thing, like with Palmer being kind of emblematic of some of the Doctor's traits, um, I feel like Emma, too, kind of stands as like a emblematic of the companion, too, that you have 
her as this she's not just a psychic she's an empathic mm -hmm. so she's defined by her feeling and her emotion and her compassion for other people which is kind of the role of the companion i think is to be like you know the that um voice of reason and common sense and compassion for the doctor you know the he's not always he's much more on the intellectual plane you know and uh you know whereas it's often the companion that is encouraging him to kind of do the right thing or holding him back or kind of guiding him morally i guess um so the fact that she's sort of you know go she's led by her intuition and her feeling rather than by anything else i think is kind of important mm. sure um but to move on to move on to clara so again like another layer of like the i guess greater complexity of the episode too the fact that this is or at least starts out as a ghost story um mm. and you know so you've got this little i love that little i love the return of the orange spacesuit i always get really excited <laughs> when because we haven't seen that in a long that's the first time the 11th doctor ever used the orange spacesuit um, sure. so that gets me kind of happy but i like that section where they go through time and he takes pictures you know yeah um, and and clara's sort of moment of being completely overwhelmed by what she's just experienced um yes. and i like her her speech um which i'll just read here so she says have we just watched the entire life cycle of earth birth to death um are you and you're okay with that uh one minute you're looking you're in 1974 looking for ghosts but all you have to do is open your eyes and talk to whoever's standing there to you, I haven't been born yet. And to you, I've been dead a hundred billion years. Um, and then she asked whether she's out buried in the ground. And he says, yes. And she says, but here we are talking. So I'm a ghost. To you, I'm a ghost. We're all ghosts to you. We must be nothing. Um, and then he says, no, you're the only mystery worth solving. Mm -hmm. So for me, I like this on a number of different levels because I feel like it ties the, the it ties the premise into like the larger symbolism of the series. So it's not just a ghost story that, oh, it's nice to do a ghost story, but it kind of makes ghosts more than just ghosts. It becomes like suddenly for the doctor, because he's going through all of history, like Clara says, they're all ghosts. You know, they've all sure. he's from the future, or at least capable of traveling to the future. He's not limited by any time. So by definition, they're all kind of dead already. Um, mm. So he's looking for ghosts, but, you know, he doesn't have to look. They're there right in front of him. So again, he becomes like Palmer, this sort of obsessive ghost hunter, you know. And in the same way as Palmer kind of is trying to figure out the secret of you know, uh, the witch of the well or whatever. He's kind of trying to figure out who Clara is and what her, but, but I also like the way that the whole speech and his line at the end there could apply 
both to Clara individually mm-hmm. and to like humanity at large. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. um, like you're the only mystery worth solving. Does that mean Clara? Like I'm, I need to figure out the mystery of who you are, or does that mean, you know, humanity and his right, the figure out you. Yeah. why he loves, you know, what is it that about these people that makes them special? Like he could have anybody as companions. Why does he keep coming back to human beings? I guess. Um, yeah. You know, and, and then you have the layer on there too, of the fact that for Clara, she's not only as everybody goes to the doctor, but she is even more so, you know, because of these deaths that he's right. seen her. So there's that kind of factor. Right. Well, that's too. what, that's why I wanted to bring up too, because that's, that's the motivating factor for them being there. So like for him being there anyway. So like, yeah, there is this idea of, yes, there's, you know, there's like, Oh, well you can go anywhere in time. So in some places I'm not even born in some places I'm a ghost. And so because you're kind of capable of going to all those places, I'm sort of, both at the same time to you. Mm-hmm. But then like, yeah, the fact that there's like at least two other versions of her that he's mm-hmm. run into before who are dead, but then there's also periods that they're not dead. So theoretically, mm-hmm. like he could go back to before those times too. So like, there's just these, right. there's different complexities there. The, um, the other, the other thing that I wanted to, to sort of bring up was, um so the fact that he can travel to anywhere in time like sort of the the corollary of of what clara is stating or arguing here mm-hmm. is that since the doctor can go anywhere and since sort of every time every time is available to him mm-hmm. and i i think this is kind of the point that he's trying to make in a way, or a very similar point, is that the only time that actually matters is now, the mm. immediate time. So, like, because you have, like, you know, because there are all of these, you know, because, like, if you think of, like, eternity, the the blip of a person's life is sort of meaningless. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it doesn't have any meaning, but... Obviously, that's not the case, and that's what the doctor's saying. Is like, no, you're you're actually the only mystery worth solving. So, the meaning isn't in the vastness of time; it's in the mm-hmm. infinitesimally small period mm-hmm. of time that you have with that companion, with that mm-hmm. influence in that person. So, like, there's this there's this idea of of yes she's sort of right like you know huge cosmic existential crisis mode Mm -hmm. and he's kind of bringing it back to the very fine you know needle point of yeah this is the time that matters the moment that's right now um and and the moment that i'm here with you and that's why i'm here with you because i find you fascinating and Mm -hmm. again you clara but also you people like humanity so Yeah, anyway, I I think that's a very I like I that was probably one of my favorite moments in the episode, if not my mm-hmm. favorite moment. So, yeah. I definitely definitely like that. 
Yeah, no, that's one of mine too. Um, and then Clara calls it back at the end, you know, I just saw saw something I wish I hadn't. What's that? Everything ends. So we're back to that oldest theme. And also the fact that they're in there at that year, whatever, with the sun expanding and the earth dying, which calls you back to the end of the world, yep. which is the first episode where that phrase is kind of used, um, you know, with the, the doctor, everything has its time and everything dies, you right, know? Right. So um, kind of a little bit of a echo there. And I know people have mentioned, uh, you know, don't ever forget that while the, you know, the doctor and Clara are down on the earth, the doctor and Rose are up in, you know, space kind of, at that same moment. At the, almost at that same moment, you know, watching, you know, yeah. the sun sort of engulf the planet. So, right, right. Um, mm. This weird, again, kind of like causal time loop, you know, connecting back yeah. to itself and everything. Yeah. Huh. Um, yeah, that's a good point. I, I didn't actually even think of that while I was watching it, but yeah. Yeah. Um. A few other things about Clara, too. Um, I guess I'd point out kind of a continuing theme, I think following on from maybe like Cold War, is her kind of reluctance to be like super, like that, you know, Emma's line about she's more scared than she lets on. Mm -hmm. But she, there's a slight kind of, she's a cautious person, you know, so the fact that she doesn't really want to go look for the ghost and she has to get the doctor to dare her like, you know, to do it. Um, you know, and like, like you would expect, you know, the worst things get, she rises to the occasion, but you know, there's that kind of bit of her that doesn't really want to go searching in the dark house, looking for the supernatural that, you know, um, the doctor says like, you want to come with me? And she says, I dispute that assertion. Like, you know, no, not necessarily in it just for the thrill of, you know, the adventure. Um, so I wanted to sort of point that out. Um, and the other thing with Clara, too, um, or one other thing with Clara is, I guess let's talk about this stuff with the TARDIS. Yes. Um, because that's another through line that we have um right yeah it's a bit more time in this episode yeah so i mean we've seen before the tardis not liking clara or mm -hmm. that's seem, what she said yeah. seemingly not like like with um the ring ring of yeah. octan or whatever mm -hmm. rings of octan like there right. there's um right that moment where she's with the young queen or the yeah. Queen Mary or whatever she was. Mm -hmm. uh, the. Right. That she's like, well, I don't think the TARDIS likes me too much. And it like sort of locks them out. Um, won't let them go in there. And then like similar happens here. So she can't get in there when she's trying to go save the doctor. And the TARDIS like shows her a hologram of herself. And yeah. I, I love that where she's like, you know, I, I chose someone that you would you know, respect and it's yeah. of course her herself. So like what, you know, is this implying that she's really egoistic or like, you know, right. what, what's the, 
what's the right. sort of implication there and she seems to be what the TARDIS is implying right yeah. right and she seems sort of offended by that but um but then it does let her in so yeah. like I'm not entirely sure what to make of that like I mean so I mean one thing is the writers needed a way to actually save the doctor so right we can open the door and let Claire in but like if if we're not thinking that cynically about it mm-hmm. like you know what's the TARDIS's motivation there? Is it is it that she successfully pleads and and so it kind of convinces her the TARDIS to open mm-hmm. the door? Um, or like is it the idea that there's it knows that there's no other way to save the Doctor and that even though it might die and certainly would have right. like its energy drain drastically dangerously low. Mm-hmm. that it might be worth it if they can save the doctor. So like, mm-hmm. well, obviously this is, we're speculating, you know, in a being that yeah. doesn't talk except that one time in that one episode, right. you know, like that we don't actually know the motivations here, but there something clicks, literally the lock opens, but like, mm-hmm. you know, there's also something like sort of between the two of them and, and I guess I'm not entirely clear why, but like, I don't know if that indicates a shift in sort of their relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, or if it's more just, yeah, again, sort of like they both are concerned about the doctor. So the TARDIS is going to help sort of rescue him. That's kind of how I read it. Like, I think it, we obviously have yet to sort of find out why the TARDIS doesn't like her other than this dig about her maybe um, being a little conceited or something, you know? Um, yeah. And they're like but, stupid but, and, things like, you know, don't open the umbrella. Yeah. You know, don't, stuff, right. Like, right. You know? It, right. But that even seems like more of an excuse. Like after, like that, I don't think that's, I don't think anybody thinks that's the root right. cause. No, it's no, like, no. it's more like she already doesn't like you. Right. So don't antagonize her. <laughs> How do you expect her to like you if you're going to, you know, spill water everywhere kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. It's a health and safety um, nightmare. Um yeah, but yeah, I mean, yeah. And I, so I sorry, Well, I was just gonna say, like that's barring the fact that we don't actually know why the TARDIS doesn't like her, if you just sort of accept that for the time being, I've read this episode as that is more what it is, that A going into the parallel pocket universe is you know, very dangerous, so the TARDIS is reluctant to do that, but Mm. also has to overcome her own resistance for whatever reason to doing what Clara tells her to do, you know, but but there's this sense of she gives her a hard time about it, but eventually they're united in their desire to rescue the Doctor. Right, they're not necessarily best buds at this point, but they both care enough about the Doctor that they're willing to risk working together to do so right Um, Right. and i like the way that the tardis uh rides all the way through the wormhole so you get that like you know how exhausting this is for emma so you get the like birth scream at the end because she just brought the whole you know like almost the whole time and space vortex through you know because of the tardis and everything and and a little bit of a little bit of an echo of 
Captain Jack there clinging to the TARDIS as it goes through, like, the vortex and everything, like, holding on from the outside of the box and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the... Right. So, if I had to guess... Mm-hmm. Well, and this, I mean, this goes into sort of the other thing we wanted to talk about, too, is the Doctor actually asking... Mm-hmm. Uh, Emma, what's up with Clara? <laughs> yeah. And she basically says, well, she's just a normal person. Like, yeah. there's nothing different. Like, isn't that enough for you? And yeah. I don't know, like, I I don't get the feeling the doctor is wholly convinced. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah. And I don't get the feeling that the TARDIS is wholly convinced. Like, right. I mean, again, we've seen Clara in two different forms before Mm -hmm. now both of whom have died Mm -hmm. and we're not sure like what the relationship is between them Mm -hmm. other than it seems clear i mean given the fact that they have like the same names like you know and look exactly alike and all this stuff like that they right there's clearly a relationship of some kind going on here and that's not normal so Even if Clara is technically a normal person, there's something going on not normal with regard to her life. And the TARDIS seems to know that. Like, Mm -hmm. or at least that would be my guess as to that's what the TARDIS doesn't like. Um, And that's also what's driving the Doctor's curiosity, too. Like, it's not just the TARDIS. They, you know, are working in concert. concert there and um and it's funny so earlier when you brought up the um you know the doctor's wife Mm -hmm. episode um Mm -hmm. you know i did think of that as well because this is like the tardis protecting the doctor you know and not you know i mean obviously it lets clara in when the doctor's with her but also Mm -hmm. kind of like the no, he's not here, so I don't have to let you in kind of right, thing. Right. Like, this is maybe the TARDIS's sort of passive-aggressive way of right. saying, you know, my husband's not home, you can wait, you know, outside right. the door. So, um... Right, yeah. For whatever, I mean, that was a little misogynist, maybe the way I stated that, but, like, I do, sure. feel, I, I do feel right. like she, there's that... She feels, she doesn't feel a liking or a loyalty to Clara on her own behalf. It's more right. like she indulges her because of the doctor. You know? right. Well, and even you think of the doctor's wife, that line about you run around and bring home strays and like in a way she's right. always kind of annoyed by a new companion, but sure. there's something extra annoying about this one yeah. maybe. Um, um, and actually it, it, I hadn't thought of this before, but what you just said, and then also uh, what I said earlier about, the doctor clinging to the outside of the TARDIS, kind of reminding me of Jack. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Utopia. There's something. It was wrong. the same sort of thing. Of yeah, he's he's wrong, and the TARDIS goes to the end of time to try to shake him off, and she can't. You know right. that like they get stuck at the end of of time because he's this fixed event and this anomaly, and it's like abhorrent to to the TARDIS and to the Doctor. Right. Um, right. So she's not quite as uh, violent as that with Clara, but there's that similar kind of, that's the other example I can think of where she's shown a disliking 
you know, for one of the specific one of the characters. Yeah. Um, and and just so the other notable thing in relation to the TARDIS, which isn't necessarily have anything to do with Clara, but mm. um, is the persistent ringing of the cloister bell. The cloister bell, uh, right, right. You know, when the doctor sort of yeah. uh, in danger of being trapped in the pocket universe and stuff. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, I like his um, I like the way they the editing juxtaposes like the ring of the bell with him going, Oh dear you know that like right. I'm so screwed, you know. Yeah. Um, it has that kind of dread about it. Um and and again, you know, so going back again to like, you know, the concept of the TARDIS being like the constant companion anyway, uh-huh. if not the spouse of the doctor. Right. Um, just that like this is this is the method it always uses to like mm-hmm. yeah, like that final, you know high pitched warning. Well not high pitched because uh-huh. it's a cloister bell, but like, you know, the the warning of like there's something drastically wrong here. Right, like, only like in the you most can, extreme circumstances. Like you yeah. can tell when your spouse or companion of many years is truly upset and this is like the thing that signifies that for the doctor. Yeah. Um you don't mess when the cloister bell's ringing. Like there's No, exactly. Yeah. Um and well, so, for the doctor, sorry, go ahead. Were you well, no, something? I was gonna, I was gonna say, let's we can finish with the doctor. Um, go, kind of continuing on the the stuff about his pursuit of figuring out Clara's mystery and everything before he talks to Emma. You get Emma's line to Clara about, you know, don't trust him there's a sliver and a vice in his heart and yeah like her first she doesn't really confront the doctor later but to clara that coming out very ominous and cold and calculated you know like that's kind of what i take from it is that she has this sense that he's maybe more interested in the mystery that that there's a kind of you know, well, she's a normal girl. Isn't that enough? Why isn't that enough? And, and you yeah. know, her kind of calling him out on the fact that, uh, you know, what what is he willing to do in pursuit of the answer right. to this question, I guess. Right, right. Like, you're, you're looking too hard at, at the problem kind yeah. of thing. Um, like, just be happy with yeah. traveling around with this fun, intelligent, you know, right. kind, whatever person. But the other thing is too, and I don't, I careful how I word this. I don't think mm-hmm. Emma lies to the doctor, mm-hmm. but maybe she does. But maybe she does. <laughs> like, sure. like when she says that, you know, Clara is just sort of a normal person. Mm-hmm. If she's, and I didn't really think about this. So you were just talking and, and brought up that. Cause I, I do remember you know, that line of, you know, the, the don't trust the doctor or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And of course we all know rule one, um, yeah. you know, the, the idea that maybe, maybe Emma's okay with not quite telling the doctor the whole truth. Mm-hmm. Like, so may, maybe Clara is a normal girl. 
mm-hmm. and plus. <laughs> like, she's a normal plus girl. <laughs> like, right. there's a, something a little extra to her, something, or maybe Clara's a normal girl, That, but that doesn't necessarily mean Oswin and the other Clara were normal people. Like... Right. Like there, that, that, that may not be the whole truth, right? Yeah. That there's there may you know this. I mean, we talked about this with like Angel and the Shanshu prophecy, right? Like that there's that there's always many different ways to sort of interpret prophecies and stuff. And so if you're thinking about like Emma as sort of a psychic and a seer kind of capacity, maybe she's not giving the full yeah brush of the picture, you know. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I don't know. I, maybe she's just telling the truth as she sees it too. Like that. And maybe that truth that she sees is wrong. Like there's also the idea that she is psychic, but that doesn't mean everything she sees is necessarily accurate either. Right. So a number of different possibilities here. Um, yeah. I, I don't know what's correct. So yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll see, I guess. Yes. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah, and I guess just towards the end there, again, I mentioned that kind of reversal at the end into the doctor's realization that this is, he's misjudged the story, you know, and it's actually about, mm. you know, reuniting this couple. And I, I, I love his little um, Cole Porter reference. Birds do it. Bees do it. Even educated fleas do it. <laughs> right, like, right, right. Even and and love the line. Every lonely monster needs a companion. You know, kind of mm. lumping doctors and monsters, sort of in and people in together. Right. You know, monsters are no exception. You know, right. um, time lords and monsters. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, so you get that kind of pairing off, and 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 the way that. The episode starts with as the kind of cliche dark and stormy night, but at the end, you know, when it's the next day, everything's bright and sunshiny, and there's flowers everywhere, and it's like, sure, you know, it's just the whole tone has changed. Um, and yeah, he goes back in and, um, you know, tells the crooked man that he, you know, understands. I love and I love that dichotomy about the doctor that you totally understand why someone could say he's not trustworthy and he has ice in his heart at the same time you totally understand like that he's the kind of person who would risk his own life and cross dimensions to save this weird monster and reunite him with his lost lover like right that's not a paradox for the doctor he's totally capable of you know they're they're equally true about him i think sure um and then like just at the very end, uh, you know, his line, "Get here she comes, get ready to jump. And so, you know, again, that ambiguity of, is he talking about the TARDIS? Is he talking about Clara? Is he talking about the, maybe the female monster, which is the counterpart to the male monster? You know, like, mm-hmm. who's she in this scenario? And then the fact that it just sort of ends, like, you know, he jumps and then that's the end of the episode. So we never really you know, get to wrap up the story. There's a sense of, like, a little bit of a continuing adventure there. Sure. Um, Sure. So, I'm not sure if there are any other... I feel like we covered the Doctor 
when we talked about some of the other characters, so I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I If there's mean, anything else to say about him individually. I don't have anything in particular at this point. So. Okay. I'm, I'm curious, I think, just looking ahead, I'm curious to see if, like, what Emma said to him resolves his curiosity or not. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And we have a few more episodes in the season, so I suspect we do. it won't be the last time we hear him sort of questioning <laughs> that, but, like... I think you're... Probably right, but yeah. yeah. You know, like, if I were a betting man kind of yeah. thing. But, you know, I mean, and I'm and I'm curious about Clara, too, because I actually, I think, again, I don't know if, like, Emma's lying or withholding mm-hmm. information or whatever, but I do think that there's something weird going on here, and I'm just curious to know what that is. All right. There, you know, and it's always that... It's always that frustration of I know too that she's in the next season, mm-hmm. you know, and like yeah. so th- this isn't like a one shot companion, one right, season right. Uh, companion. I mean, like we or even less than a season because she comes in partway right, through, like halfway through. Yeah. Um. So, so I know she continues to be there, but that doesn't mean I. I mean, I sort of like you with Don. Like I don't know what capacity. Mm-hmm. she plays other than that she's still the companion but i don't know how things get resolved from what we know about her already so we'll we'll see i guess and and we'll be talking more about it next week along with uh the season uh season two premiere of angel see you then <laughs>